BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When 18-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg said a few days into the COP26 climate summit that the event itself was, quote, turning into a greenwash campaign, a PR campaign, she was articulating what was on the minds of many environmentalists around the world. Greenwashing has been around for decades, of everything from products to corporate promises. And we end the hour dissecting some recent claims. My guest is Vijay Vediswaran, a global energy and climate innovation editor with The Economist and host of To a Lesser Degree, The Economist's podcast on climate change. Vijay Vediswaran, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. So let me just start with the term and concept greenwashing. Remind us generally what's meant by it and the kinds of actions it encompasses. Usually when we hear the phrase greenwashing, it suggests an entity, often a company, is making environmental claims that it thinks that consumers will like. Uh, Things like uh, a product is eco-friendly, or let's say a company like a fizzy drinks maker says, um, we're going green, we're using less plastic, uh, for example. Uh, But in fact, when you look a little closer, it turns out the claim isn't true, or it's exaggerated, or there may be one or two products or certain ingredients or certain components that might have been improved a bit on the environmental front, but that ends up justifying a larger consumption of very unsustainable materials. And so it tends to have some aspect of deceit. And that's really what we're talking about. Because there really is no standard, right, in terms of using these types of terms that that must be met. That's a big problem. You're right. That um, when we have these wishy-washy phrases like eco-friendly or green, um, and now the current term that's in vogue, of course, is uh, net zero. Uh, mm-hmm. Many companies will have advertisements claiming that they're going to be net zero, uh, meaning that they're going to give you the impression that their companies won't emit any greenhouse gases that contribute to climate change by a certain date. But what do they mean by that? And they never really tell you exactly what that means, how they're going to do it, by what date, what hard cuts and emissions they're going to make, uh, whether they're going to trade away for these uh, so-called net zero emissions by paying you know, for a dubious offsets or projects in other countries that are not very well monitored. So there's a lot of ambiguity that's being used by companies mischievously to convey a green image. Oh, I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. Before we do, though, let me invite our listeners, if they would like to talk about greenwashing, from vague promises to outright deception, that's what we're talking about right now. Curious what questions that you have about spotting language or products that have been 
Greenwashed for our guest, Vijay Vediswaran, a global energy and climate innovation editor with The Economist. You can call with your questions or experiences of greenwashing that you have seen at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. So, right, Vijay, this term net zero and reaching net zero emissions targets, you wrote that more than a fifth of the world's 2,000 biggest publicly traded firms, including more than two-thirds of companies that sell household and personal products, that they've made these net zero commitments. Can you talk about what these promises consist of in reality? Sure. Um, Let me start by saying, of course, it's better to have companies wanting to do good, right? Uh, It's better to have them rowing in the same direction as governments and society and consumers and uh, in the direction of a cleaner planet, right? And and, and in the direction of lower carbon emissions in terms of taking care of climate change. The opposite would be, for example, some of the oil companies or coal producers who are not rowing in that direction. On the contrary, they're, they're going the other direction. They're lobbying against policies that would curb climate change, gases, and so on, right? So broadly speaking, this could be a good thing. So we should be in in favor of corporate action on environmental issues, especially because it's in response to growing societal pressure and employee pressure. A lot of the companies, uh, Amazon most notably, didn't particularly care about the environmental footprint of its operations, which is huge, right? It's a Goliath. Think about all the packages every one of us gets shipped to our house and the footprint that has in terms of gasoline usage and other sorts of nasty emissions. Well, employees at Amazon agitated and forced the company to get serious about it. They even at some risk of their own employment put in climate uh, shareholder lawsuits, as it were, and, and petitions at the annual general meetings to force the company to take the issue seriously. So it's a good thing. Now, my beef with all of this is They're using very slippery language. They're not telling us what these commitments will mean, what actions they're going to take themselves to reduce their emissions versus a certain kind of loophole that there is called carbon offsets. And we can talk about that if you'd like. When companies say something, they often use a loophole. So uh, just to put it very briefly, companies normally when they say, you know, we, we will cut our emissions of greenhouse gases down to net zero by a certain year. And often they'll use something like 2040 or 2050, long after the current CEO has retired and taken uh, his or her large pay packet. Uh, you know, it's, it's long after any accountability can be held. Uh, but, but they often leave room for something called offsets. And offsets are not when you cut emissions yourself, but instead you buy credits. And a lot of people will be familiar with this, but basically you might pay, let's say, to protect a forest somewhere in the world uh, that's supposedly in danger. And you get some credit for that. Or you might invest in a renewable energy project. You get some credits for that. In theory, that could work. And there are good quality uh, organizations and good quality offsets. The problem is there's no globally accepted or legally uh, enforced standard on this. And there are a lot of dubious offsets as well. And forests burn down over time, for example. So if you paid for an offset and it burns down the next year because of a wildfire, uh, are you being held accountable? Or do you still get to count that offset, for example? Who's keeping you honest? Um, as well as you know, in some parts of the world, they may claim to preserve a piece of land as forest, but in fact, 
the degradation gets shifted to the next plot of land, let's say. Uh, and so it's it's a question of are you really adding to the, the global stock of carbon protection and, and so-called carbon sinks uh, by protecting that forest, or is it just a shell game? So these are all questions that are as yet unanswered, and companies have very enthusiastically gotten in on this, buying these offsets for very cheap amounts of money, much less than making the harder cuts in their own emissions or the difficult choices about their own business models. That's really where the substantive change has to come. And the offsets can, if they're abused, can become uh, a bit of a chimera. Mm. And you also touched on the fact that uh, corporate bosses can set these net zero emission targets for dates well into the future. Did you want to say a little bit more about why that gives you skepticism? <laughs> yeah, no, again, uh, I mean, there's something sensible here, right? We have to, we can't just uh, you know, if we could just take a very skeptical view and say that it's all baloney, sure. But in fact, it, it, there is a reason to set long-term targets, right? And that's because if somebody told you, I'm going to cut all my emissions by next year, well, first of all, that'd be ridiculous. You can't do it, right? You couldn't just shut down Amazon or any other company, uh, pick one that you happen to like. Yeah, it's not realistic to have zero emissions tomorrow or even so-called net zero. So you need to have a longer-term pathway. It's right to think long-term. And we want governments and companies to think long-term. But you need to back it up for it to have teeth. If you, you can't just claim you're doing something by 2050. I want to know what's your plan for next year, the next three years, next five, and next 10 years to make sure that you can get to that 2050 target. And that's where a lot of companies are very cagey. They don't want to really uh, tell you. Or for those investors who are sophisticated, you can look at their budget uh, that's announced and their capital expenditure plans. If you really dig through their annual reports, you'll find a company that might make a very big net zero claim for 2050. When you actually look at where is their capital expenditure going, you find they're still investing in, let's say, fossil fuels, or they're investing in very uh, energy inefficient things for the next five years that they have to report by law to their investors. You say, hang on a minute, there's a disconnect between what you say you're going to do and where you're putting your money. And that's one way to catch out some of the greenwashers. Hmm. Well, let me go to caller Elon in Oakland. Hi, Elon. Hi. Um, I studied at McGill, and uh, my professor talked a lot about how carbon credits themselves were probably just smoke and mirrors. They were never going to work at the scale that we needed compared to something like a carbon tax. So I'm wondering if you can speak um, to, at all to the fact that maybe this, this the, the problem's bigger, that like the environmental community needs to step up and be honest about how things like that won't work. Um, to what extent are, corp you know, is this not even about, you know, trying to label things, but even more about, uh, you know, what we accept as viable strategies. I know nuclear is often dismissed by a lot of environmentalists when it's one of the more potent ways to actually get our energy needs met cleanly. Mm. Vijay, you. your thoughts? Yeah, so there are a couple of ideas in there, but let me take up the first one, which is a really big one. That is um, carbon tax, or we can think of it more broadly as a, a price on carbon emissions, right? And your uh, professor was absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the last 20 years, uh, I've been arguing on the pages of The Economist and elsewhere uh, that we need to price the harm that's done by global warming gases like carbon dioxide to something like a carbon price. A good way to do it would be an economy-wide carbon tax, but there are other ways to do carbon pricing as well. Uh, what we shouldn't do is to have the price of emitting this nasty pollution that contributes to global warming be set at zero, which is basically where we are in most of the world. Most of the world's economic activity that produces greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide, doesn't face any kind of 
penalty or charge. And so we get lots of it, right? Uh, as opposed to other kinds of pollutants, which we regulate, right? There are other kinds of local pollution that we, and especially in California, have very strict controls over. Um, and increasingly, states like California, parts of the world like Europe do have carbon pricing, and there are ways of getting that involved, uh, you know, through regulation or through indirect means. Ultimately, we're going to need a global, global commonly agreed carbon price and before we really begin to tackle this problem in the right way. Or else what you're going to have is some parts of the world, like the Californias and the Europe's, where it'll be very expensive to emit carbon. So you'll have industry go to places like India or emerging markets where they don't have any carbon pricing. And I think that's going to be a problem unless it's dealt with. We're talking with Vijay Bediswaran, a global energy and climate innovation editor with The Economist and host of, to a lesser degree, The Economist's podcast on climate change. We're talking about greenwashing and how to identify it in products and in company claims. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786. You're also posting your thoughts online. And David writes, one of the worst greenwashers is Blue Apron. They message like crazy about being green and recycling, yet their extensive use of plastic film is totally non-recyclable. Then they offer to take the box back for recycling, but that requires return shipping, even less green. I canceled my account with them because of this. Vijay, yes, beyond company net zero claims, for example, David is writing about products and services that are routinely marketed as being environmentally friendly but then having practices or uh, you know, using terms that, that do not accurately reflect what they're doing. You touched briefly on how to be able to tell these things at the company level, but, but what, are your, what are your thoughts and what kind of advice do you have for how consumers can judge these things? Sure. I think the most important thing is we need to have a good BS detector, right? As consumers, uh, by the very fact that we're consuming, we're contributing to the harm, right? There's, there's no way around that. So try to minimize the harm that we do. Make better choices. Don't believe companies' claims just because they say, you know, our product is super eco-friendly. And as you know, the, the listener rightly pointed out, it's heavily packaged in, in plastic. It requires shipping, which at the moment, largely involves fossil fuels and diesel trucks, uh, and also sending it back, right? So you can do your own calculation. Um, so I think that you're right to keep your skepticism uh, up and compare the realistic options you have, right? We also can't let the ideal be the enemy of the good, right? It may be that one or two listeners are you know, living in a cave and somehow you know, catching these radio waves coming from from the station in some uh, form of primitive technology, but most of us live in the modern world and modern society. And, and as such, try to do uh, pick the, the, the greenest of the choices in front of you, I think is, is a reasonable option. Uh, the number one thing most of us do that could contribute to climate change, to be honest, is not a choice about um, a plastic bag or uh, you know a, a home delivery service, although those are things to think about. It's if we up and fly to London or Tokyo, right? Air travel. Uh, is the number one thing that contributes to climate change for most Americans. Um, the second thing would be a choice of how we travel. That is, if you use uh, you know, a gas-guzzling SUV and consume lots and lots of uh, gasoline and travel lots of miles. And, and the third thing might be if you eat lots of beef, for example, and other forms of food that are very uh, greenhouse gas intensive in the process of making those foods. And so if you bear in mind, what are the big hits in, in your life, your own carbon budget? Um, it's important to think about the small stuff, but you know the thing you need to sweat is the big stuff.
Well, Nancy tweets, I see greenwashing in my feed here every day from oil companies mostly. Many tout their carbon capture ideas or offsets. We don't see results, and oil and plastic production is projected to increase this year. I feel deeply saddened by this. You're right. It is a shell game. I'm curious, VJ, what you think are the most egregious forms of greenwashing and whether there is some way of regulating or enforcing um, greenwashing, <laughs> which is well, you know, there's yeah. some good news here. Uh, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, there is uh, there's always uh, exposés in the press and, you know, there's there's ways of uh, keeping uh, the more important the brand in terms of dollar value, you know, like a Coca-Cola or a Nestle, which has multiple billions of dollars in brand value, they actually have a reputation at risk, right? So uh, they can, they're big targets that can be attacked. And we, we all remember when uh, companies like Nike had a sweatshop scandal, right? People went after Nike. Well, guess what? There's a hundred other sneaker makers smaller than Nike that whose names nobody knows, or they're, they're Chinese brands that used even worse sweatshops and they weren't boycotted. So the big brands, actually, there's a market correction mechanism because of vigilance nowadays online, because of Twitter, uh, that in a, in a sense, I worry a little bit less about the biggest companies. It's all the ones that are in the supply chain whose names we don't know, right? The ones that sell into Nike or that sell to Coca-Cola. Uh, most of us couldn't name them. The B2B businesses where actually the biggest problems are with where we need to upgrade. And here there is a role for uh, commonly agreed standards. And in particular, there's regulation. The SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, is going to take steps in this direction, they've indicated, uh, at least in one area. Under the Biden administration, the government has said, we're going to look into claims that are made in terms of uh, greenwashing concerns, and they're going to look into uh, excessive claims made by companies. And also because a lot of investment funds now, it's called ESG money, that is environment, social governance money. It's a very popular trend in pension fund investing and mutual fund investing. A lot of money going towards so-called green causes, but with dubious uh, claims being made. That's also something I think in 2022, we're going to expect from regulators to step in and provide some rules and guidance. Well, Adarine writes, I'm so frustrated with how dire the situation is and how little is being done to address the problem and how many millions of lives will be lost within our own lifetime so that private oil companies can make profit. I feel like the only solution at this point is simple, a globally coordinated effort to expropriate all assets of all oil companies, reallocate the profits towards converting all infrastructure to renewables and eliminate fossil fuels from use entirely. Vijay, we just have a minute left. I'm curious what what you think about you know, the claim that I sort of started the segment with from from Greta Thunberg, who basically expressed almost that COP26 itself is sort of a greenwash campaign. So much happens there. This has been looked at as sort of the last best hope for dealing with the climate crisis and so on, but it's also been looked at with skepticism. How do you look at it? How do you think we should think about a, a conference like this? I think, um, you know, we... Too, too much was pinned on it. No one conference is going to solve climate change. Look, climate change is a hundred-year problem. That's how long climate gases like CO2 stay in the air, carbon dioxide. And we, we have to work on this year after year, decade after decade. And so this UN meeting in Glasgow was one step in a 25-year process already uh, of meeting annually and making progress. And here there's some modest good news, and that is the wheels did not fall off the bus at this conference, right? We made forward progress. Uh, the Paris summit a few years ago made forward progress, and we're going to keep going forward. So I, I, I remain hopeful that we're going to head in the right direction. Vijay, 
Vedi Swaran, Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor with The Economist. Thanks so much for talking with us. My pleasure. My thanks to Tina Lauerberg for producing this segment and to our listeners for sharing their, their thoughts and their questions. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.